Good morning. My name is Wes, uh, one of the pastors here. Excited to have a time together now where we'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, a Bible app, however you ex- access the Scriptures, if you could turn to our passage today, Matthew 26, beginning at verse 17. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 17, when you found that, would you stand together with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Matthew says this, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for us to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city and a certain, to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as he had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Which isn't, he's not outing anyone here. Uh, Everyone was dipping their hand in the bowl. So he's saying, one of you here eating this meal together with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi? And Jesus answered, you have said so, which is sort of a, a Hebrew idiom of kind of turning the responsibility for the question back on the person asking, almost just like, well, you said it. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to all of them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's God's word. We'll stop there. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more quickly, and we'll then dive into this together. Spirit of God, would you now illumine the preaching of your word, open eyes and hearts and minds to receive what it is you want to speak to us through your word and accomplish what you want to accomplish in each one of us today through your word. You promise us when you send out your word, it does not return to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, Would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, I know this is crazy to even say, but in just two weeks' time, or maybe a little over two weeks' time now, most of us, in Canada anyways, will be sitting down to some kind of meal with friends or family for the celebration of Thanksgiving. Can you even believe that we're here already? We'll be sitting down for Thanksgiving, and while some of the details of that supper that will invariably differ from house to house, I mean, maybe you're someone who prefers pecan pie to pumpkin pie, okay? Maybe you are, I don't know, one of those 
crazy people that likes a Thanksgiving ham as opposed to a Thanksgiving turkey. I don't understand you, but you do you, whatever it is. The, the details individually from house to house may differ, but regardless, every one of these celebrations would still be identifiable as a Thanksgiving dinner, right? But imagine with me, if you will, that when you sit down for Thanksgiving this time, that when grandma or whoever brings out the turkey to be carved, the host of the dinner starts trying to lead everyone in the singing of happy birthday. They're just like, happy birthday, come on guys. And everyone's just like, what? Um, or, or, or after supper, they clear the dinner plates, they're bringing out uh, dessert, and across the pumpkin pie is written, congratulations, graduates. Now, it's not like any of those things are illegal, like you can't do that. But although you're fairly certain you're celebrating Thanksgiving with everyone together, it kind of feels like you might be celebrating something else. Uh, uh, as these familiar symbols of Thanksgiving celebration are clearly being redefined in some way that's going to stand out to everyone. Everyone's going to notice, and you'll need some kind of explanation to understand why they're doing that. Why are they, what's, what's their intent behind those redefinitions? What's, what's going on here? And I bring it up as we continue in this teaching series through Matthew's Gospel entitled Kingdom Come, because when you come to understand the time-honored history and tradition of the Passover meal for a Jewish person, this meal that Jesus and his disciples are eating together in our passage today, you see Jesus doing the same thing. He's, he's redefining these familiar symbols of the Passover meal in a way that would also have definitely stood out to his disciples, and which would have required some kind of explanation as to Jesus' intent. Like, why, why are you doing this way? Why are you saying it that way? Which is interesting, because if you've been a part of this gathering here for any length of time, you know, generally speaking, the Lord's Supper. This, this reimagined, uh, redefined celebration of the Passover that we see Jesus instituting in our passage today. It's part of every one of our Sunday services. We do this virtually every Sunday together. And yet what you might not know, despite our familiarity with the practice, is first of all, uh, why we do this. Like what, why are we celebrating the Lord's Supper? What's, what's that about? And why are we doing it? And then secondly, as it relates to the redefining of familiar symbols, what we don't get, despite our familiarity with it, is just how strange, how weird and different our familiar practice of the Lord's Supper today would have been to Jesus' disciples then, before eating this particular Passover celebration together with him. They would be sitting in our service. They would just be looking at this like, what are you doing? And so I want to do something together with you, David. I want to kind of do a bit of a, a deep dive with you. Although, don't worry, I'm going to make sure that our feet can still touch the bottom the whole time. I want to do a bit of a deep dive together with you and look at both the intent behind the original practice of the Passover celebration as well as into Jesus' intent in redefining the practice into what we now know as the Lord's Supper or communion. So today we're going to look at just two things. We'll talk about the origins of Passover and then Passover redefined. Not just these two things, the origins of Passover, Passover redefined. So if you close your Bibles, Bible app, whatever you've got, could you open it again with me to that passage? I'd love you to follow along with me uh, as we dive into this passage, Matthew 26, starting at verse 17. 
as we explore Jesus' redefinition of a divine command that continues to shape the way that we obey that command right up until this very day. Okay, so let's look first of all at the origins of Passover. The origins of Passover. And we need to look at this first because, as I'm sure you can imagine, if we don't know what something is originally, like how it started, there's no point in talking about how it's been redefined or reimagined. We wouldn't spot the differences, right? Same way that there's still people that believe that Apple still puts out a new iPhone every year. Uh, when you don't even need to look at the original, just look at last year's model. Hold them up side by side, pretty, virtually identical. Okay? We need to know what the original looks like to know that there's been a change, a difference. So if you look at verse 17 with me of our passage, Jesus' disciples ask him, hey, where are we to make preparations for this Passover meal? And then there's this whole kind of clandestine mystery thing, go to this certain man in the city and he'll set it up for you, uh, which seems weird, but it's not in the sense that although Jesus is quite a popular person, he's also something of a wanted man, so he can't exactly promote where it is he's going to be next. So there's a bit of secrecy to where they're going to set up this Passover supper, but the question I want us to consider here is what, what is the Passover meal that Jesus' disciples are making preparations for? And what was its significance for a Jewish person? And in order to answer that, we need to go all the way back to the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, where we find God's people, the children of Israel who were the promised people that, that God had promised Abraham to make into a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. We find this people certainly numerous, definitely numerous, but still also very much overshadowed and overruled by Pharaoh, who saw God's people as nothing more than a threat, as well as a helpful tool in order to build his kingdom. And yet if there was one kind of like overarching theme of the book of Exodus, I think it could be argued that Exodus 3 captures the heart of it well, namely that in the midst of their suffering, in the midst of their hardship, God hears the cries of his people. And he works through history as well as individuals in order to bring about their deliverance. I think we could say that that's kind of the overarching theme of Exodus. You see this specifically in verses 6 through 9 of chapter 3, where God meets Moses on the mountain there in the burning bush, this kind of iconic scene. And God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And if you uh, grew up in church or you just seen movies like uh, Prince of Egypt, Exodus, Gods and Kings, whatever, you know that this interaction on the mountain with Moses and God is the first domino in a whole series of events where there's now this conflict. There's this Moses being sent to lead God's people out of Egypt, and Pharaoh, very much not in favor of that plan, uh, not excited about losing his entire slave force in, in a day. Uh, it's kind of like, nah, I think I'm good with keeping them. So despite that, at the apex of this conflict in chapter 11, God tells Moses this. He says, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And as you read on into chapter 12, what you learn is that this final plague God says he's going to send is an angel of death that will come through the entire land of Egypt and strike down the firstborn in every home. 
uh, from the, everyone in, in every home, even the livestock, right up to and including Pharaoh's own household. And yet, although this angel is to visit every household in Egypt, God prepares a means of escape, a means of deliverance for his people from the plague of death. They are to take a lamb. Uh, without blemish or defect, they are to slaughter it and then take the blood and mark the doorposts of their home with the blood. And God says, in doing so, he says, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Okay, so that's where we get the specific language of Passover. It's when literally the angel will pass over these homes marked with the blood. It's a description of God's deliverance, uh, his protection of his people, as well as they, they came to symbolize their deliverance from Egypt. As after this plague, God does, or, or Pharaoh does, let the people go from Egypt. A couple of other important details about that first Passover to know about. First of all, uh, each home is also to eat the lamb. Right, they're to roast it and eat it, not just simply slaughter it for the blood. They're to take the lamb and eat it, and they're to serve it with bitter herbs. Uh, they are to eat bread made without yeast along with the lamb, as they're going to be leaving quickly. There's not time to wait and let the bread rise. So they eat this unleavened bread. The entire meal is to be eaten, as I said, in haste, with their cloak tucked into their belts, their sandals on, and their staff in their hand. That is, they're to eat the meal with the expectation of deliverance, like we're going to be getting out of here. And lastly, they're supposed to celebrate and remember this day forever. God says, this day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance or command. Okay, so, so these are the origins of the Passover, as, as well as this festival of unleavened bread that we read about in verse 1 of our passage. A meal followed by a week-long festival that was celebrated every year by God's people, where they remembered God's deliverance of them from Egypt. And it would include a lot of these same elements. They would have uh, the lamb served with bitter herbs. They'd have the unleavened bread and all these kinds of things. The only things they wouldn't include is they, they didn't mark their doors with blood anymore. Uh, they didn't eat the meal necessarily with all their bags packed because the deliverance had already happened. Okay, So that part isn't included. But a lot of these familiar things are still part of the celebration, even till today. But as part of the yearly practice, God's people also developed something of a liturgy, kind of a script that would go along with the celebration that included a series of prayers, hymns. They had a four cups of wine, which would symbolize God's promises to Moses in Exodus chapter 6. And then there was sort of a question and response part of the meal as well, where the boy of the home or someone in the home would ask the meaning of all these things that they were doing, and then the host would explain the significance of everything to each person in the house. This is, this is what we're doing and why. So the point being that this was a way of ensuring that the yearly practice of the Passover celebration would never be divorced from its meaning or significance. It would always be, this is why we're doing this. But if we pause here and kind of just zoom out now, from you, you, you can see that the celebration of Passover actually served multiple different purposes in the life of God's people. It wasn't just simply God saying, hey, remember that time I did that, that thing for you once? I want you to keep remembering that. There was multiple different purposes for why he wanted them to remember it. First of all, looking backwards in history, celebration of Passover was a constant reminder of God's care and compassion for his people. 
That rather than just being this distant, aloof deity in heaven, that God, their God was a God who heard the cries of his people and acted in power in order to bring about their deliverance. It was a reminder of God's protection as he had provided this means of escape from the plague of death that he was pouring out on the land of Egypt. It was a reminder of God's provision as having then been freed from slavery, they were led to this land of their own, this land that God had promised Abraham, flowing with milk and honey. So looking back, it had all these purposes in the present moment, just practicing this celebration yearly as they did it in the moment. This Passover celebration became, uh, uh, it solidified their cultural identity as the people of God, as these called out and delivered ones, because nobody else was celebrating Passover, only them. So it became a cultural identifier for them. And then looking forwards, this yearly celebration of Passover provided hope for God's people. Particularly in this moment now where they're living under Roman oppression, this is a reminder to God's people that each year they could remember the same God who delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh could also deliver them from Caesar. They would have this land of their own where they would dwell with God once again. And when it comes to you and to me as followers of Jesus today, the reality is this isn't, we, we look at this as sort of a Jewish practice, and yet the reality is we can draw some of the same encouragement an application from the Passover as Jewish people have since the very first Passover, that fateful night in Egypt ourselves. As the God who delivered his people from slavery in Egypt is the very same God who delivered us from slavery to sin and death. Uh, the very same God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush is the same God who spoke out of the cloud at Jesus' baptism. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, it's kind of a common misconception sometimes, but the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are one and the same. They're, they're not different. So we can draw some of the same encouragement, which means in our own lives, uh, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your distress, in the midst of sustained opposition, whatever it is, the same God that heard the cries of his people in Egypt, he hears you. He, he is able to act in power in order to bring about your deliverance. When it relates to spiritual enemies that come against us, the same God who provided a means of protection against the angel of death has provided for us the shield of faith the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, by which we can continue to stand firm in the midst of these attacks. Looking forward to this promise of God's ultimate rest in his presence, we have a sustaining hope today, no matter how dark life gets. And then, at least as it relates to kind of the redefined practice of Passover anyways, we have this culturally identifying practice whenever we celebrate the Lord's Supper together that marks us out as God's people as well. So there's all kinds of different ways that that same celebration matters and has importance to us today, even as followers of Jesus today. Now there's lots more, man. I kind of, this is kind of one of my hobby horses. I could spend a lot of time talking about historically all the things going on with Passover, uh, as well as even how the historical understanding of Passover and its origins speaks to us and continues to shape us even to this day. But if you notice, the, the passage that we're looking at today isn't really about the origins of Passover. It kind of assumes that we know that and is really about Jesus' radical redefinition of the Passover. Okay, so that's what I want to look at lastly here, and we'll talk about Passover redefined. 
Passover redefined. So having that fuller understanding of the Passover's origins, I think it'll be much easier now for you to see just how radical Jesus' redefinition of the Passover supper truly is. Where you see Jesus doing that, if you want to look with me here, is beginning in verse 26 of our passage. If you want to go ahead there. Now, yes, I realize we are jumping over a large section of the passage that we read, this whole part with uh, Jesus' interaction with Judas and his saying that he's going to be betrayed. I actually kind of wrestled um, with whether or not to focus on that aspect of the passage instead, uh, especially including with uh, what Jesus goes on to say after this about uh, Peter and the rest of the disciples, how, how they're going to fall away. Uh, I kind of wrestled with what to do there because that's actually a pretty powerful image of where you've got the Lord's Supper bracketed on either side by betrayal. Uh, it's kind of this really powerful image of both the frailty of humanity and the faithfulness of Jesus. But I wanted to be... I wanted to keep us focused, all right, because I think we talk about too much, in a sense, we're never going to get anywhere. So rather than focusing on the Passover and the betrayals, we're going to focus in on the Passover in particular. And I think with some of the stuff we'll come to later in 26, uh, we'll, we'll be able to come back to some of the stuff about betrayal. So we won't, we won't lose it. But again, look at verse 26. At some point during this Passover dinner, this happens. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay, now, we've done, we've done a bit of the work, right? having more familiarity with the origins of the Passover, we start to already recognize some of the familiar elements of this Passover dinner, right? Jesus is serving as the host or the presider of the meal here. He's explaining the significance to it, to those partaking. You have unleavened bread as well as the cups of wine. You have Jesus giving thanks according to the script and the liturgy. Uh, for the bread and the wine, blessed are you, Adonai, our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, ruler of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. You also have them closing out the meal with the singing of, of these hymns. So a lot of familiar elements that would stand out. But what we don't usually catch, unless you're very familiar with the whole liturgy of the Passover celebration, it's just how radically Jesus redefines the symbols of bread and wine in his words of institution. For with the unleavened bread, he breaks it, and rather than saying the traditional words, which would have been, this is the bread of affliction that our fathers ate in Egypt. They suffered that we would be delivered. That's what he was supposed to say. Instead, Jesus says, this is my body, take and eat. And then with the cup, what's, what scholars believe was the third of four cups of wine served at the Passover meal. This was the cup of redemption or the cup of salvation. Jesus says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Pour it out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Again, this is weird because for us, this sounds like that's what you say. That's right. That's how the, the, the words go. But we don't even blink an eye at that. But Jesus' disciples, you've got to see and feel how this would feel for them. As they're hearing him say this, they're just like, what's he doing? This, this would have been as radical as singing happy birthday over the Thanksgiving turkey. 
They would have just been looking at him like, what are you saying? But of course, the important question we need to be able to answer at the end of the day is not like, did Jesus redefine the symbols? Did he change the script? We know he did. The question we need to answer is why? Why did he do it? What was Jesus' intent in redefining these symbols? And the answer comes, first of all, when you see Jesus redefining these symbols of the Passover, not generally, but very specifically as referring to himself. Right? He's not just saying, you know what, I want to switch things up and I want to make it about something different. He's saying he's making it specifically about himself. You see, he says, verse 26 and verse 28, this is my body. This is my blood. So he's pointing directly to himself. That's the first place we need to look. But the ultimate answer comes when you notice the most glaring omission from this Passover celebration, which is what? What's missing from this supper? Anybody? Thank you. The lamb. Where, where is, do you notice that? Not here or in any of the four Gospels recounting of the Last Supper do we see any reference to the most central symbol of the Passover. This, this, this thing that delivered them from slavery in Egypt. The lamb slain, its blood placed on the doorpost. We don't see it anywhere showing up in these things. Why, along with redefining these symbols of the Passover, would Jesus and the gospel writers leave out the most central symbol of the Passover supper? And the answer comes beginning at the beginning of John's gospel. When John the Baptist first sees Jesus walking towards him to be baptized and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. pointing forward to Jesus as this Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, probably one of the most famous passages that pictures and points forward to this suffering servant who would be the Lamb that would take away the sins of the world. Where Isaiah says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God stricken and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Do you see it now? Do you hear it? Even some of the language is the same. It means the lamb wasn't missing from this Passover supper at all. He was presiding over it. Which means in the end, guys, it, Jesus wasn't 
redefining any of the symbols of the Passover at all. He was simply revealing himself as the divine intent, which the very first Passover and every Passover after that was pointing to. That he himself would be the lamb slain. His body would be broken. His blood poured out on the cross to deliver them from so much more than slavery to a world ruler, but to slavery to sin and death itself. As we read in Hebrews 2, which says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, this is Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's what's so powerful about this passage. As well as all, all the gospel writers recounting this event in Jesus' life and ministry with his disciples because in just a few sentences... Jesus flips the entire course of Jewish history on its head, revealing that rather than trying to redefine anything, Jesus is instead revealing himself as the thing to which the Passover had been pointing all along. But before I close and we come to partake in this rightly defined, or maybe we could say fully realized Passover celebration together, we need to look at just one last thing which Jesus does here in closing. As he closes out his presiding over the supper in verse 29, look with me there. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We need to look at this because maybe you miss it, but what Jesus is referring to there in those words is ultimately his resurrection. To a future day at the end of all things when he will return. Right? As Paul says in his own recounting of the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he's pointing to this future day when he will return, when all who are his will be welcomed into his fully realized kingdom of God, when he will live among his people. Earth and heaven will become one, as John tells us in John 21. God's dwelling place is now among the people. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He's pointing ahead to that future day. I think D.A. Carson uh, understands Jesus' intent in this verse well when he says, Just as the first Passover looks forward not only to deliverance, but to settlement in the promised land, so also the Lord's Supper looks forward to deliverance and life in the consummated kingdom. It's both. Which means, although Jesus, yeah, he's very much the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. He is, and, and he knew he would be, also the risen Christ who unlike the lamb in the first Passover, he doesn't stay dead, right? He rises victorious over death and whose victory now becomes ours for all who put their faith in him. That's the point and that's the hope of this supper we take every Sunday. But although Jesus doesn't stay dead as the first lamb in the very first Passover and subsequent Passovers had, there is still a sense in which we, we, we do still take Jesus in through the eating and the drinking of the bread and the cup. There's a sense in which we still feast on the lamb in some sense. 
As Keller says in his work on this passage, the death of Jesus does not necessarily or automatically do anything for you. Just as you, can, you could starve to death in the presence of a meal, you have to eat it. Jesus Christ doesn't just say, this is my body. He says, take and eat it. He doesn't just say, this is my blood. He says, drink it, all of you. There's a sense in which to still to take it in, which sounds very much like Jesus' strange teaching in John chapter 6, where he told those questioning his authority, once again, pointing to a historical symbol's true intent and true significance. Jesus said that unlike the manna in the wilderness, the people ate and still died. He was the true bread that came down from heaven, adding, whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of this world. Very truly I say, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now clearly, Jesus is speaking metaphorically in some sense here. There as well as in our passage today. He's speaking metaphorically in some sense because, you know, when Jesus hands, he breaks the bread and says, this is my body, he's he's holding bread, right? He's not holding a knife saying, take a piece. He's holding bread and says, this is my body. After supper, he takes the cup. This is my blood. His blood hasn't been spilt yet. So there's some sense in which Jesus is speaking metaphorically as he uses these symbols. And yet, contrary to those who hold just a bare memorial view of the Lord's Supper, it's interesting to me that in both the original Passover celebration as well as this fully realized celebration in our passage today, there's still a command to take and to eat it, to take it into ourselves. That is, rather than simply observe the sacrifice of the lamb, we are also to take it into ourselves. Richard Lovelace says it this way, he says, spiritual life flows from our union with Christ, not merely the imitation of Christ. So we're not simply observing this sacrifice. There's some sense in which we're still to take it into ourselves. And I know, listen, I get it. If you've studied church history at all, you know there's like been a long, heated, sometimes violent conflict debate over these words that Jesus says here for the last two millennia. What did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body? What do we do with that? Whether it's as our Roman Catholic friends believe that the bread and the wine actually become the literal body and blood of Jesus in the practice of the Lord's Supper, Or as the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli thought and taught, the bread and wine are simply bread and wine and nothing more. Long debate and long struggle between those. Which is it? What what, what is Jesus saying? My My own view, I spent a lot of time thinking and studying and praying about this over the years. My own view has come to land somewhere kind of in between the two. Um, that the elements of bread and juice that we use each Sunday to celebrate the Lord's Supper are, are, are bread and juice. And something more. That's, that's my own view on it. That, that somehow, in some mysterious way, Christ is spiritually present in the elements in such a way that when we eat and drink in faith, our souls and our faith are nourished somehow in the same way that our physical bodies are nourished by physical food. Again, it's mysterious, it's, it's different. I'm not saying that has to be your uh, view of the supper when you take it. But I do think it makes the best sense of Jesus' own words about this celebration, as well as passages like when Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11. Again, and he, he warns the Corinthian church about examining themselves before they take the Lord's Supper, lest they eat and drink in vain, 
or in an unworthy manner, saying, if they do that, he describes it as sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. We've got, we got, we got to do something with that. What does he mean? How? But beyond that, even, even if your understanding of the Lord's Supper is strictly a remembrance of his death for our sins, right? Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. It's important to remember that whenever God calls us to remember something in the Bible, it's never a command to just simply call something to mind. Hey, remember that that happened. It's always a call to action. It's a call to, to live in light of that reality and then to be shaped and formed more and more into the image of Christ in our thinking and our behavior as we do it, as we remember. So, yes, we proclaim the reality of Jesus' death in history when we take the Lord's Supper together. But I believe we are also to be shaped and formed by that reality. We are to live in light of all that Jesus' death has accomplished for us, as well as finding hope for today as we wait for that future day when we will feast with our risen Lord anew in the Father's fully realized kingdom. Oh God, bring that day. Amen.